before your throne of grace. Offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, Lord, holy and acceptable to you. It's our reasonable service, Lord, and we thank you for your shed blood that is paid for so much for us. We just can't, we can't even begin to think to repay you, Lord. Just do the best we can to be obedient to you. Humble ourselves before you day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, and listen for your voice and obey it. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. So today we're going to talk about the persecuted church. And I, <clears throat> I am thinking that there are several areas we want to cover with this so we'll just start here we're going to talk about vietnam today and we're going to talk about the persecuted church there so that we have an opportunity to get a full understanding when you pray thank you there are some times when we know situations because we're familiar with them because they're close to home either your family your friends when we pray for schools everybody know the needs there and so forth but when you start praying for um, the body of Christ worldwide, and I think in, if we're believing God for a move of God, he wants all of his children included in that move. And so, amen. So we need to <clears throat> keep that in mind as we pray. So I thought I would share uh, something with you uh, today, and we'll pray for, we'll actually do the prayer uh, as we finish today and and pray for uh, the persecuted church in Vietnam, because we really need to uh, start where we need to start, and that's wherever God points us. But I'm going to read this uh, um, uh, uh, article about... um, Liberia. It says, Liberia is free of Ebola, says World Health Organization. So the people who spread the bad news are now spreading the good news. So that's, amen. <clears throat> says, a group of Liberian women is holding three days of fasting, praying, singing, and dancing as a country prepares to be declared Ebola free. Amen. The World Health Organization declared Saturday that Liberia's devastating 14-month Ebola outbreak, which killed more than 4,700 people, is over in the West African country. Who, or the World Health Organization, who said it has been 42 days since the last confirmed Ebola victim in Liberia was buried. That is twice the 21-day incubation period for the disease to emerge in an infected individual. So it's... Twice the the amount of time, if there was anybody newly infected, would have shown up by now. The national ceremony is planned for Monday. So this was, uh, oh, this is today's date. So Monday is when they're doing the celebration. So we might as well go and party with them, whatever. (laughs) Outbreaks persist, however, in neighboring Guinea and Sierra Leone. WHO cautioned, noting that this reality creates a high risk that infected people may cross. And, well, you know, they always got to give you some bad news. But when God kills it, it's dead, right? Amen. So we'll just keep declaring it dead. This affliction will not rise up a second time. Amen. Amen. Whose latest situation report showed that Guinea and Sierra Leone each recorded nine cases for the week ending May 3rd. Who has recorded more than 4,700 Ebola deaths in Liberia, a country of more than 4 million people? There have been more than 11,000 deaths in West Africa. We are proud of what we collectively managed to do, but we need to remain vigilant, says Peter Van, uh, Jan, Jan Graf, 
UN, uh, United Nations Secretary General's Acting Special Representative and Head of the yada, 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 yada. It's got a million titles, amen. It says the virus is not yet out of the region. As long as the virus is in the region, we're still, all of us, potentially at risk. On Saturday, Liberian President Ellen Johnson Searleaf toured health centers in Monrovia. She's a very uh, conscientious president. Um, I know she and President Bush got along, uh, George W. Bush got along very, very well. And uh, he was able to cancel debt to them. I mean, they, he worked really with them uh, very closely because she's such an aggressive kind of go, you know, going forward kind of person. She was a very competent woman. It says <clears throat> she toured the health centers in Monrovia, embracing and taking group photos with health workers. She was accompanied by U.S. Ambassador Deborah Malik, the Associated Press reported. At the peak of the outbreak, Liberia was reporting 300 to 400 new cases every week, marking the highest number of deaths and the largest, longest, and most complex outbreak of Ebola since it first emerged in 1976. At the height of the crisis, flights were canceled, fuel and food supplies ran low, schools, businesses, markets, borders, and most health facilities were shuttered. Fear and uncertainty about the future for families, community, and the country and its economy dominated the national mood, they said in, the, in the declaring Ebola, uh, Liberia Ebola-free. It said the transition to a Ebola-free status was a monumental achievement. Uh, the man who led Liberia's much-criticized response to the disease said Thursday that finally ridding the country of Ebola was vindication for leadership that had taken such a beating during the darkest hours of the epidemic when critics complained about slow steps taking to halt the spread of the deadly virus. Today, the same people, the critics, are using us as a success story, he said. In Washington, the White House on Saturday congratulated Liberia on the achievement but cautioned that we must not let down our guard. Well, you know what I'm saying. The U.S. military, which was quick to respond to the crisis, built 11 clinics across Liberia, many by contract, and trained 1,500 health workers. Yet by the time the work was completed in late December, the disease was already on the decline. See what I'm saying? So this is a supernatural move of God that did this. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. The New York Times reported that only 28 Ebola patients were ever treated at the clinics built by the U.S. military. So you see, man's efforts are always too little, too late. I'm going to let you hold on to that, Pastor Show. Always too little, too late. We need God, folks. I mean, that's all you can say about that. It's got to be God and, and the people of God who pray and will we'll put these things to flight. So that's a success story, and all glory goes to God because it's not a human hand did anything almost to help that. And so, <clears throat> But it's a good thing. So we're going to talk about uh, the uh, um, persecuted church in Vietnam. And uh, I, I thought I'd start. I didn't want to read too much history of Vietnam. Some of you, though, aren't old enough to remember the Vietnam War. And so uh, I probably need to give you some background. So I'm just going to I'm going to read some stuff. Don't go to sleep on me. Just keep patting your foot or whatever you do to stay awake. But uh, we really do need to get you to understand where these factions and forces come from and how they get a hold in different nations and what they do to people and what they do to Christians who are, uh, you know, emerging in these countries. Um, 
me see if I want to start here. I'm going to start reading you. This book is called Between Two Tigers. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. But I'm going to read the foreword to this book. The gentleman who put this book together, I think, is a part of either Campus Crusade for Christ or... Oh, he works for Voice of the Martyrs, okay? So some of you are familiar with that organization, seeing their literature and stuff. So since 1947, when Pastor Richard Wormbrand, the founder of our organization, the Voice of the Martyrs, began working with Christians from captive nations, there has been no denominational prejudice when giving scriptures or financial help to those who were persecuted. See, the real church isn't, doesn't, you know what I'm saying? If you're not a real church, you can play around with you're not one of us and we don't fellowship with you. But if you're real and you're up against a real devil, all that just kind of disappears and doesn't really mean anything. He says, we, we, there has been no denominational prejudice when giving scriptures or financial help to those who were persecuted. We have helped Baptists in Russia, Catholics in Albania, Pentecostals in Vietnam, many in areas where there was no one else to mention the forbidden name of Jesus. The Christian witnesses in this book come from many denominational backgrounds. Their boldness to stand up in the face of adversity, distribute Bibles, and proclaim Christ outweighs any denominational difference. We all have been caught in our comfortable denominational armchairs pointing doctrinal fingers at each other through the doors of our open church buildings on every corner. We have gathered in councils seeking areas of agreement, But simple agreement on particular doctrine is not obeying God. Agreement requires no energy. Agreement does not produce new converts to Christ. The Christians who dare to illegally baptize in the jungles of Vietnam or who return to worship on the ashes of hundreds of churches burned by Muslims in Africa understand the priorities. Jesus' blood purchased us to propagate the kingdom of God. The great commandment was not about doctrinal agreement, which is a base, but about the act of loving God and the act of loving your neighbor. Christians around the world receive their orders and are, are obedient to him. From our sheltered environment, we are all too eager to poke in and tell them how to witness. Or we sit back and criticize the different doctrines of those reaching out for Christ and yet do not reach out ourselves. Although our statement of faith reflects on evangelical stand, we once delivered eight Bibles to a Catholic priest in central Vietnam. He had not seen a Bible for 20 years. He joyfully received them to give to others in the countryside. If someone who had no money for a Bible and and who was not allowed by their government to own a Bible reached out their hand and asked you for one, what would you do? In the 60 seconds of this dangerous opportunity, would you ask them for a doctrinal statement or hand them the bread of life? Such is the hunger in Vietnam. In communist Vietnam, there are government-monitored official churches, Catholic and Protestant, and four major unofficial or underground house church movements. There are Baptists, Pentecostals, and others. Christians have been persecuted in Vietnam for 300 years. Non-Christian religions in Vietnam do not experience the same level of persecution as Christians experience, since Buddhists and animists do not present, represent a great threat to the communists. The Great Commission of Christ's love is a spiritual threat to the powers of darkness. 
Some provinces in Vietnam control the church and imprison pastors much more readily than other areas. In North Vietnam, the Hanoi government allows only about 10 official church buildings to remain open. Although the Christian population multiplies rapidly, number, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Nowhere in Vietnam is permission given to construct new church buildings. Although the government of Vietnam has allowed the printing of limited quantities of Bibles, some of the Christians who give their testimonies in this book are now sitting in prison for distributing those Bibles. The Vietnamese government still does not allow the printing or importation of any Christian literature in the languages of the more than 60 tribes encompassing over 6 million souls. Although they are Vietnamese citizens, these tribes speak different languages and have different racial backgrounds. <clears throat> I am thankful to the humble Christians of Vietnam whom I have met and others like them. They show my family that we are spiritually enriched and called to live a holy life in our wealthy countries for a purpose. Eternal joy still hides under the unattractive cloak of sacrifice and commitment. Let's say that again. Eternal joy still hides under the unattractive cloak of sacrifice and commitment. Some of the tribal evangelists I meet do not know how to open a can of Coca-Cola but have brought their entire village to Christ. Huh? I know how to open the can. Can I open a heart? Those whom I have met illustrate the little mentioned church of 2 Corinthians 16 as having nothing yet possessing all things. They remind me that the most permanent blessing comes from giving that blessing to others with no thought of keeping it and consuming it upon myself. You may not agree with portions of the shining Vietnamese testimonies in this book. Total agreement is not necessary. It is my prayer that at least you will be inspired by the holy boldness and simplicity of these Vietnamese Christians as they seek to obey Christ's commandment to go into all the world. May we do likewise. Okay, so I'm going to read you a little history of Vietnam. It says, in September 1945, Ho Chi Minh proclaimed the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and held the position of chairman. Communist rule was cut short, however, by nationalist Chinese and British occupation forces whose presence tended to support the Communist Party's political opponents. In 1946, Vietnam had its first National Assembly of election, won by the Viet Minh in central and southern Vietnam, which drafted the first constitution. But the situation was still precarious. The French tried to regain power by force. Some Cocho Chinese politicians formed the seceding government of the Republic of Cochin, China, while, these non, while the non-communists and communist forces were engaging each other in sporadic Bible. Stalinists purged the Trotskyites. Religious sects and resistance groups formed their own militias. The communists eventually suppressed all non, non-communist parties but failed to secure a peace deal with France. Full-scale war broke out between the Viet Minh and France in late 1946, and the first Indochina War officially began. Realizing that colonialism was coming to an end worldwide, France fashioned a semi-independent state of Vietnam within the French Union and appointed a head of state. France was finally persuaded to relinquish its colonies in Indochina, and in 1954, when Viet Minh forces defeated the French 
in, in a, uh, in, uh, defeated the French forces in a battle at Dien Penh. In 1954, Geneva Conference, it, the 1954 Geneva Conference left, left Vietnam a divided nation with Ho Chi Minh's communist government ruling the north from Hanoi and Don Dinh's Ziem's a Republic of Vietnam supported by the United States ruling the south from Saigon. And so that's how the United States got in the Vietnam War. The North was, was communist, the South was independent, and so the United States was supporting the South. Got a tissue for me? Was supporting the South, and so that's how we got in. People say we got suckered in by France and the, um, uh, what you call it, Geneva, Con- the Geneva Conference. According to Geneva Conference rules, the United Nations was supposed to support these people. But when it came down to it, it was France pulled out and we were left there. And that's how we got stuck there. But we were fighting off communism. It says in the north, the communist government launched a land reform program, which according to Stephen Roosevelt was aimed at exterminating class enemies. It is estimated that some 50,000 to 172,000 people perished in the campaigns against wealthy farmers and landowners. That's what the communists do. They find the people with the power and the money and the land and the wealth and they go to confiscate it. Okay, redistribution in other words. But it never gets distributed to anybody. They discuss... They think there are much higher estimates that range from 200,000 to 900,000, which include executions of the National People's Party members in the South. Diem went about crushing political and religious opposition, imprisoning or killing tens of thousands. As a result of the Vietnam or Second Indochina War, 1954 to 75, Viet Cong and regular People's Army of Vietnam forces of the DRV unified the country under communist rule. So they defeated the South Vietnam government after all those years we spent over there. It says, which sought to maintain South Vietnamese independence and support the U.S. military, whose troop strength peaked at 540,000 during the communist-led Tet Offensive in 1968. The North did not abide by the terms of the 73 Paris Agreement, which officially settled the war by calling for free elections in the South and peaceful reunification. Two years after the withdrawal of the last U.S. forces in 1973, Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam, fell to the communists. And and the South Vietnamese Army surrendered in 1975. In 76th, the government of United Vietnam renamed Saigon Ho Chi Minh City in honor of Ho Chi Minh, who died in 1969. The war left Vietnam devastated, with a total death toll standing at between 800,000 and 3.1 million, and many thousands more crippled by weapons, substances such as napalm and Agent Orange. In the post-1975 period, it was immediately apparent that the effectiveness of Communist Party policies did not necessarily extend to the party's peacetime nation-building plans. Having unified North and South officially, the CPV still had to integrate them socially and economically. In this task, CPV policymakers were confronted with the South's resistance to communist transformation, as well as traditional animosities arising from cultural and historical differences between North and South. South Vietnam was purged 
Oh, Le Duan purged South Vietnamese who had fought against the North, imprisoning over one million people and setting off a mass exodus of an humanitarian disaster. So there are a lot of Vietnamese people who immigrated to this country during that time. Compounding economic difficulties were new military challenges. In the late 70s, Cambodia, Cambodia under Khmer Rouge regime, started harassing and, and raiding Vietnamese villages at the common border. To neutralize the threat, PAVN invaded Cambodia in 1978, overran its capital, Phnom Penh, driving out the incumbent Khmer Rouge regime. In response, as the action to support the pro-Beijing Khmer Rouge regime, China increased its pressure on Vietnam, and then the Chinese troops crossed Vietnam's southern border in 79 to punish Vietnamese as Sino, uh, Sino-Vietnamese war, but their foray was quickly pushed back by Vietnamese forces. Relations between the two countries have been deteriorating for some time. Territorial disagreements along the border in the South China Sea that had remained dormant during the Vietnam War were revived at the war's end and a post-war campaign engineered by Hanoi against the ethnic Chinese Ho community elicited a strong protest from Beijing. China was displeased with Vietnam's alliance with the Soviet Union during this prolonged military operation in Cambodia. Vietnam's international isolation extended to relations with the United States. The United States, in addition to citing Vietnam's uh, minimal cooperation and accounting for Americans who were missing in action, as an obstacle to normal relations, barred normal ties as long as the Vietnamese troops occupied Cambodia. Washington also continued to enforce the trade embargo imposed on on Hanoi at the conclusion of the war in 75. The harsh post-war crackdown on remnants of capitalism in the South led to the collapse of the economy in the 1980s. With the economy in shambles, the communist government altered its course and adopted consensus policies that bridged the divergent views of pragmatists and communist traditionalists. Throughout the 80s, Vietnam received nearly $3 billion a year in economic and military aid from the Soviet Union and conducted most of its trade with the USSR and other Comic-Con countries. In 1986, Nguyen Van Linh, who was elevated to CPV General Secretary the following year, launched a campaign for political and economic renewal. His policies were characterized by political and economic experimentation that was similar to simultaneous reform agenda over, uh, undertaken in the Soviet Union. Reflecting the spirit of political compromise, Vietnam phased out its re-education effort. The communist government stopped promoting agricultural and industrial cooperatives. Farmers were permitted to, to till private plots alongside state-owned land. And in 1990, the communist government passed a law encouraging and establishing private businesses. So there's a limited amount of freedom in Vietnam, but it is primarily communist at this time. And the communist rule, uh, with a very strict ruling, as they do everywhere, and there's very little freedom. They say they have some a few economic <clears throat> reforms there or few things that they're trying to do to help people, but it's very, very limited. Communists like to control things. There is no freedom. 
at all in communism. And if they cannot control you, they'll kill you. And so there's this, it's just a, a bad system, and it's terrible. So I'm going to read to you a little bit more about this message. Somebody shake my friend up here. If you're going to go to sleep, don't sit on the front row. It's very distracting to me. So, yeah, sorry about that, buddy, but, <laughs> yeah, just excuse yourself. The Vietnamese have a saying, if you use a blanket to cover yourself, then you will know whether or not there's, there are lice inside that blanket. If you use a blanket to cover yourself, then you'll know whether or not there are lice inside that blanket. Many people who live outside Vietnam have reported that the people have freedom of religion. But if you really want to find out the truth about their way of life, live for a few weeks inside their country and walk in the shoes of the members of the persecuted church. So in other words, you don't know a person's life until you walk in it, you know, until you become a part of it. The trials these Christian brothers and sisters experience are heartrending. Every day pastors are arrested. Children are left without their parents. Families live in poverty, all for the sake of Christ. The church in Vietnam was born and raised in adversity. From the first moment, those who claim the name of Christ have suffered in many forms. The Christians live between two tigers, communism and Buddhism, and tribal religions, so Buddhism, tribal religions. No matter which way they turn, they face a tiger threatening them. In the tribal villages, in the cities, in the countryside, informers and those who oppose the gospel lay in wait to sabotage their faith. But the Christians in Vietnam do not stop because of their imminent danger. Instead, they travel lonely roads to remote villages, face police interrogation and prison, all with a sense of joy and accomplishment in Christ's power. How did it all begin? Vietnam is a small country in Indochina that has suffered greatly. The nation has been wounded from head to toe by various wars. As a result, the people became bitter and felt as if their lives were being sacrificed to the philosophy of communism. Seeking deliverance, they swam in a sea of sin. At the same time, Buddhism was brought in from China. Soon, every town and village had pagoda, shrines, temples. Idols adorned every home and all classes of people celebrated superstitious religious rites. The church in the north. These changes did not help the church. Communism, its greatest source of persecution, began around 1954 and still continues. The government began to confiscate church buildings and threaten those who claimed to be Catholic or Protestant. Officials considered Christians to be anti-country, anti-government, and unpatriotic. The oppression was more severe in the north than in the south. After Vietnam was divided into two parts, 100,000 Catholics and Protestants escaped from the north and settled in the south. The Christians who remained had their property confiscated and many were in prison. The officials destroyed Bibles, tore down all crosses. Newspapers and broadcasting companies spread false information about believers while atheism and Darwinism were taught. The persecution of the North Vietnamese church became so severe that today the people in many large cities know nothing about the gospel and have never heard the name of Jesus or even seen a Bible. 
One way the government succeeded in dimming the light of the church was by controlling the activities of church leaders. Since 1954, the Christian Missionary Alliance in the North has not been allowed to preach freely, and pastors are forced to study politics. Therefore, many have turned away from the true way. For example, well, in this country, they're telling you, you gotta, you gotta marry homosexuals. So we gotta decide what we're gonna do. You understand? Everybody's gonna have to make this decision. From his North Vietnamese, Vietnamese headquarters, he endorses communism and boldly announces his beliefs from the pulpit. Bibles are printed only in small quantities, while Christians are growing by the tens of thousands. Bibles printed in the South are not allowed in the North, where there are over 100,000 Hmong tribesmen, tribesmen who are new converts. We trust in God's people around the world to help fill that need one way or another. Delivering the burning message. In the hearts of the North Vietnamese people, he said, the hearts of the North Vietnamese people are tender. They are like a tree in the desert that needs water to live. They are like soldiers defeated in the battlefields now embracing the gospel. Why are the people so open to the gospel? They have lost their way in a maze of human philosophy. The idealism of communism that they pursued for so long collapsed before their eyes. Like the prodigal son, today many throw away everything to respond to the call from heaven. In every province, Christians are preaching the gospel, but the number of disciples working in God's field is very small. Their efforts are like salt thrown into the ocean. The task is so huge and the work still limited. Who is willing to go to these people? Of the thousands of Vietnamese who moved to the South after 1979, are a few who believed in the Lord Jesus and have returned to their home areas that have no witness. Some North Vietnamese have come back from refugee camps in Hong Kong to spread the gospel. Others have heard the good news through Far East Broadcasting Company, radio broadcast from Manila, and have received the Lord. The number who believe in Jesus increases every day. They meet in houses and worship the Lord at home. They are threatened and punished by local government officials, and their names and addresses are announced on TV and over the radio to warn others to avoid them. The harvest field. The lack of funds limits the worth in Vietnam, work in Vietnam. Although there are official churches in the large cities, many Christians do not join because the pastors are controlled by the government. In these pulpits, the complete word of God cannot be shared. <clears throat> the second coming of Christ cannot be mentioned. Therefore, these Christians have formed house churches. Yay! Most groups contain 10 to 12 people who have continued meeting for months, even years. While the members learn and practice their faith in small churches, they also care for their families and new converts. The pastors teach the right point of view from the living word of God. Because of this, they endure persecution from the government and from official church leaders who work with government leaders. Now just imagine if, if there were pastors here who reported you to the government because you're preaching the truth of God's word. When the church in the south began bringing the burning message of the gospel to the north, fires of revival began in the hearts of many Christians. This has given these saints a deep desire to reach out to others. Previously, no one dared to bring the gospel to the tribal people because they were afraid that the government would accuse them of joining hands with the FOCO, a tribal government movement. 
But now the revival has sent believers to the tribal areas. The church has become a great army with banners lifted high, marching with tears pouring down in joy, as recorded in Ezekiel uh, 37, 9 and 10, explaining how the spirit of the Lord Jehovah is visiting his people. Quote, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Amen. When it says prophesy to the breath, that means that you, like we do, declare the word of the Lord. See, when you speak the word and you declare it and you say it with, with faith and with conviction, you don't know where that word is going to go. But it's, it's being sent out to those who will receive it and they receive strength and they live. See, this is, this is how it's done. <clears throat> and they rise upon their feet an exceeding great army. Amen. So, so at the end of you know the teaching, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to prophesy to the breath and let them rise up an exceeding great army. Praise God. <clears throat> Rooted in dry land. Today, Vietnam is truly a ripe field waiting to be harvested. Amid the persecution and beatings, Communist Party members are becoming witnesses for Christ among their colleagues. Who would have predicted that in the land of communism, party members would preach Christ's message to their comrades? The church is rising up like a root growing deep in a dry land, strong under fiery trials, claiming Christ's resurrected power so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is changing the course of history in Vietnam. The church has been established and many lives are wholeheartedly dedicated to Christ. The gospel is being preached over the land to many tribes up to the time when the end will come. In this book, you will hear the words of those who are in the midst of the harvest. Their stories are presented so that you can pray for them and use their testimonies to boldly proclaim the burning message in your corner of the world. So I'm going to share with you. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to share with you a testimony that I found was very compelling. It's a woman's testimony. I'm just looking for a pen. This little purse is a hot mess, but I got a pen. Okay. i make a note of this other scripture here. Was Ezekiel... 37, 9, and 10. Okay. Shannon, your printer still hooked up? Um, <clears throat> I think I want these in the NIV. Can you, Miss Tony, just pass this back to her. If you have any questions, I think I've written them down. Like it's about five scriptures on there. We're going to add to our prayer. Sorry about this, gang. I keep losing stuff here. But anyway. Okay. Now, if we decide we want to continue with this, <clears throat> this is about Vietnam, so I'm not sure how long we're going to do it. But if, if from a show of hands, I'm trying to see how much this book costs, I don't think it's more than like, 
eight or nine dollars. If you want a copy of this, put your hand up and I'll make sure we get. Okay, because I think these testimonies are important and they're they give you a heart for people. You know, I mean, they they really do change you. So, uh, you know, this is something you can read on your way down here on the bus instead of slobbering on each other. Let's everybody say yeah, especially the snores. You know, yeah. I got that. I got that. I heard that. Yeah, okay. But anyway, I mean, wherever you, it just takes a short time in your downtime or something. If some of you have tablets and you prefer a tablet version, I can find out if it's available for your tablet. You can keep it on there. So, okay. This one is by uh, this <clears throat> young lady's name is Vu Thi Moy. And, uh, Her testimony, the title of it, is Our Home in the Graveyard. My father, Vu Van Vett, was imprisoned for many years for his faith in Christ. He was beaten so cruelly that both of his lungs were nearly destroyed. But he survived by the power of the Lord. For many years, he quietly carried on his lay ministry. See, this is where people want titles. You know what I'm saying? I would love to get some of the title-seeking people over in a country like this and see what they do. You won't be able to buy any wholesale handbags or anything like that. All you can do is preach and survive. But anyway, his lungs were nearly destroyed, but he survived by the power of the Lord. For many years, he quietly carried on his lay ministry and Thuong Trang. Today, he is 81 years old and cannot travel far. He is still an active Christian in an official church. His heart overflows with testimonies of how the Lord is working in the lives of the people in in Thuong Trang. Put this put this thing here where I'm supposed to put it. Well, anyway, I'll put it here. He wants the brothers and sisters to know how the Lord poured out his love upon the church. This is the story of his faith and the faith of the body of Christ in North Vietnam. My father was raised a Buddhist. He received the Lord when he was 35 years old. At that time, he worked for the French colonial government. He was arrested in 1954 and imprisoned for four years because he refused to forsake the faith. He was also serving the Lord in an official church in Thuong Trang. The police arrested other believers along with my father hoping to scare the church and stop its growth in the north it was difficult to carry on the work of the lord from 1954 to 1975 there were no bible schools open in north vietnam there were not enough pastors to serve the lord some were arrested others were banished far away some were forced to go into the south Many Christians were arrested and many churches were closed down in the north. Many of the churches that were not closed lacked the leadership needed to survive on their own. However, the Lord watched over them and there were people who were still faithful and did not forsake him. Through the perse- Though the persecution caused problems, it also brought faith to the ones who were left behind, including my family. My mother didn't know where the authorities had taken my father. While he was in prison, she raised my seven brothers and sisters by herself. I am the youngest. My mother worked in the fields. When we weren't working, we worshiped God. 
we read the Bible with our true hearts and prayed together. Because our family's property was confiscated, we lived in the graveyard. I was born there. It was an isolated place with no houses, far away from the villages. The ground was very bare with mounds of dirt. There were no grave markers, and it was surrounded by water. It was, a very, it was very lonely for our family. We lived in this graveyard for seven years. The Lord kept us alive. Many people secretly bought us rice, brought us rice. Our house was made of banana leaves and, that we cut to make a tent so the rain would not get us wet. Sometime later, mother built a home with a thatched roof. Twelve men had gone to prison with my father. <clears throat> they had worked in the French colonial government and were accused of being counter-revolutionaries. Ten of these men died in prison. My father and another man, the only two Christians, lived. The water in prison was so terrible that it damaged my father's liver. When he was released from the prison, he was very sick. Over time, the Lord healed him. Amen. Other people didn't want to have anything to do with us because we were Christians in the family of a former prisoner. Our relatives also did not visit us. They were afraid that visiting us would cause problems for them. And that when I was six years old, I recall how the communists encouraged neighboring villagers to oppress us. They would surround us during the day and then shout accusations at us during the night. The people cursed my father. I remember hearing their voices around our grass and leaf house chanting, down with this man, down with this man. These villagers wanted to suffocate and isolate our family. They didn't want my brothers to have an education. They wanted to squeeze us to death, to pressure us to the point of denying our faith. We were ordered not to leave the area, but my older brothers walked 25 kilometers to Haiphong, where the pastor secretly gave them an education. When my brothers were in the city, they pushed very heavy carts in the streets to earn money. When they were ready to come back and visit us, they would walk only at night, avoiding the main road. <clears throat> they knew that if they were caught, they would be arrested. I remember seeing my brothers come back at night, entering our house in the graveyard. But one time, one of my brothers was caught. When I was very young, I remember being awakened early one morning by many voices shouting outside. I saw one of my brothers dash out of the house and climb up a bamboo tree. The police came into the yard and made him climb down. They told him he could not go back to the city. He had to stay at our home in the graveyard under their control. My sisters and I were not educated. My oldest sister had no work to help my mother feed us children. Because our mother had to work in the field, she couldn't watch the two youngest boys, so she would lock them in the house for safety. During that time, we experienced how the Lord protected us all. We have had many ups and downs in life, but are thankful to the Lord for his protection and provision. When my brother was 37 years old and studying to be a teacher, he said that our family was not, he said that our family was not under the communist authority, but under the authority of the Lord. The Lord gave him an opportunity to later return to Haiphong. So the police could not trace him. My brother changed his name as our father's history was not acceptable with the government and he moved to another district to work. Some of my brothers escaped to Hong Kong on a small boat. They traveled for 17 days. My brothers wanted the whole family to join them, but we could not go. They now want to come back and serve the Lord here. 
My oldest brother is studying at a Bible school in the Hong Kong refugee camp. One brother returned to Vietnam forsaking the possibility of greater financial opportunity and serves the Lord here, hearing the gospel. I grew up in the official church. Many pastors were and still are under the control of the government. They are not free to preach the word. If they apply being a doer of the word, they will be dismissed from the church. Pastors say that Jesus is the Savior, but their sermons have to be approved by the police. Now, they've done that here already, and they're not going to stop. Try it, and just to see if it'll fly, and it got shot down, but they'll keep trying. But their sermons have to be approved by the police. Even in meetings, there are always policemen present in civilian clothing. So what they share about the word is very limited. The police keep a list of the deacons and members. Church members can receive only a cloudy Christianity because they hear about the Lord Jesus vaguely as the sermons are very limited and watered down. In this religious atmosphere, I saw Jesus as a God in this world, a God in this world. That's why nothing changed in my life. I was involved in many activities of the church, such as choir and youth group. I viewed church as my family's religion because I hadn't met Jesus as my Savior and I didn't understand the sermons. When I was 25 years old, I decided to follow the Lord. I would meet often with friends who were truly seeking Jesus. This caused problems in my church as my pastor was unable to control our meetings. He called each one of us to his office and told us that we would be excommunicated if we continued these meetings. We knew that even though the past even though the pastor excommunicated us, God would never excommunicate us. <clears throat> Excuse me. My husband is a truck driver. After an accident four years ago, he was brain damaged and is not able to drive. I have to work very hard. I sew for people three or four hours every morning so I can pay for education and food for our two children. I used to sew in a shop, but it limited my ministry in the house church and my ability to help the poor. Now I like sewing for others at home so I have more free time. How lovely on the mountains. During this time, I did some work in the house church. The Lord reminded me not to forget those in other churches, so I found ways to encourage them. The places I go to evangelize are many kilometers away. Because these brothers and sisters do not have a church building, they meet in their homes. There are some house churches that have a 100 members. <clears throat> house church Christians are usually baptized in a lake in the mountains or in a bathtub, either in one of the homes or in a hotel. When we baptize, many times the police found, find out and watch us. It's easy for the police to find out about our baptisms as we come together in the village first and pray and sing songs pouring out our hearts, pouring out our hearts before the Lord. When we go to the place where we baptize, oh, then we go to the place where we baptize. We do not keep our prayers silent. We have been arrested many times for this. The first time I was arrested, we were praying together on Elephant Mountain, more than 30 kilometers north of Haiphong City. We sat on the mountain slope on the grass. The weather was very hot, like fire pouring down. But big clouds came and covered the sun to shade us while we worshipped. We cried out before the Lord, praying for the situation in Vietnam, and gave our hearts to serve God. We prayed for five hours. The people around the mountain heard us singing. <clears throat> 
In the evening, we returned to the city. A policeman came to my house with an arrest warrant, ordering me to report the next day to the cabinet, a national security organization. This was the first time I ever went to the police as my family and I never broke the law. I was quite worried. That night I prayed and could not sleep. I kneeled down and cried to the Lord saying, in your word, you say that you are greater than any God in this world. And then I opened the Bible and the Lord spoke to me in Isaiah 43. The Lord said, when we walk through the waters or through the fire, we will not be overcome. So after I prayed, I found peace and slept well. The next morning, I went to the police office with joy. It was a one and a half kilometer ride on my bike. I rode up to the center of national security in Haiphong, a large big building painted yellow. I parked my bicycle at the gate and showed the arrest papers. Walking through the main gate, I went into the building looking for the room to which I was ordered to report. Two policemen greeted me very coldly. I sat on one side of a long table and they sat on the other side. I prayed that the Lord would give me the boldness and would help me to look straight in the eye of these people. I did not hate them because of the work they had to do. The Lord had given me a love for them and I knew this time would be an opportunity for me to preach the gospel. They questioned me about many things. When I started sharing about the word of God, four other policemen came in. They had been in the nearby room listening. I shared the gospel in tears. They questioned me for two hours. Why do you believe in God? I told them about Jesus, how the Lord is good, and how God has saved my life. I focused on God's love toward man. I could tell that they were very interested in what I had to say. They asked me why I went to the mountainside instead of a church building. I replied, God is everywhere, so we can worship God anywhere we want. Because the mountainside is very beautiful, very quiet, we want to save the most beautiful place for worshiping God. In the beginning, they were very furious, but later they were persuaded by the love of God. I forgot that they were policemen. I also forgot about the dangers I might face. I desired that the Lord would bring them to his love, just as I had been brought to his love. At the end of the talk, one policeman asked me, if now we want to believe in God, is it possible? I said, yes, any time. I have shared the gospel with 15 policemen and with many other people I meet on the street. I've gone to the police many times and always see new ones in different offices and police stations. The police never have me talk with the same policeman each time because they know I will convince them to become a Christian. (laughs) In the north, they force us to go to official church meetings. They want us to meet in the church building, not in homes. The government gives orders to the official churches that if we gather more than five people in a home at one time, they can arrest us. In Haiphong, they do not find Christians, but they arrest us. There is a saying that we can put a hat on a person, which means to falsely accuse the person of a social or political crime, not a religious crime. The government gives the religious crime a different hat. This happens many times. This week, no one is in jail, but many are threatened and pressured. Newly ordained pastors in the north and pastors 
with a soft heart to preach the gospel are moved to a remote area. This even happens to, a, to the official church pastors. The government also tries to control pastors by giving them money. They try to discourage the work any way they can. Bibles are few. Only the people in church leadership have a Bible. Usually brothers and sisters in the north receive Bibles from Christians in the south. We also send money to Christians in the south to buy Bibles for us when they are available through the official church. Sometimes we receive Bibles free from other countries. Pastor Thu tried to sell one of these Bibles for 20,000 dong, a day's wages, but they usually are not sold to house church members. In Hanoi, house churches meet in different groups. These Christian workers know each other so we can share Bibles with them. The officials claim that all religions are equal, but actually they discriminate to cause problems for the students. I am 36 years old and have two sons, a 15-year-old who serves the Lord in a youth group and an 11-year-old. If they meet at the official church, they will have no problems at school, but if they meet with a house church, there will be a problem. If anyone follows a religion, it will affect their place in society by determining their work. I ride as much as 40 kilometers on my bicycle to share the gospel with people in different villages. <coughs> my brother directs an orphanage and we share the gospel at school. The Bible verse that I always remember is 1 John 4.8, God is love. We wish to mean, win as many people as possible to the Lord through his love. My ministry requires a lot of my time, but it is worth it. I am very grateful to have an opportunity to meet with the servants of God from other countries and to know that the, the Lord is opening doors for the gospel in Vietnam, especially in North Vietnam. On behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ in North Vietnam, we appreciate unofficial missionaries who come to Vietnam and also evangelistic teams here. I know th- that this is God's hand. I pray that the Holy Spirit will help all to understand the work of the Lord, the work that the Lord is doing here. I don't see the boundary of races or nationalities. I see that everyone has one father. And I want to say to the other brothers and sisters from far away that the Holy Spirit is visiting Vietnam. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. So I felt like what we would do would be to pray. We pray the prayer of uh, protection against persecution and prophesy to the breath or to the wind, like in Ezekiel, and and really uh, let the Lord hear our prayer and just continue to pray as long as the Lord says for the persecuted church worldwide and pray for the persecuted church here in America. Because I see it growing, and I see it growing just like the communist government suppresses there. We have a government here that what they call themselves politically correct. But there's an evil and a wickedness underneath when you can't tolerate somebody else's opinion about your lifestyle. You know, and you want to force people to accept (coughs) sin as okay and as a way of life. And so it's bigger than just live and let live. You can't let sin live if you're a believer. You just can't do it. And you can't turn your back on it and and say it's okay and kind of sanction it and and think it's going to go away because it continues to grow. And it gains impetus and it gains strength. And so we need to uh, put a stop to the persecution of all Christians everywhere. And we can start by, you know, allowing God to move on our hearts through understanding 
persecution in a, a much stronger sense where it is in com- uh, countries that are not like ours. Uh, frank communist countries that don't give people even human dignity, you know, but understand that the preaching of the gospel is the power of God. Amen. <coughs> If we get silent on the gospel and we don't share the truth of God's love and share the truth of God's word, uh, then we don't have any power. So that that preaching the gospel is the power of God, and that is what he has given us to do. So did you get those printed out yet, Shannon? Got a little bit? Okay, I'll tell you what I'll do then. I can read another testimony. I think we got a little bit of time. It'd probably only take about ten minutes or so to read another Let's see if this one's this one's a wee bit long, but I know I've read it before. This is called Motorbike Messengers, and you shall bear fruit. Amen. Before nineteen seventy, <laughs> before nineteen seventy-five, our friend Ravi in India rides a motorcycle. He rides a motorbike everywhere, sharing Christ with people. Before nineteen seventy-five, one tribe only had two Christians. Many tribal visitor, villagers were amazed because usually a tribal person like me who lives near the national road will not go into a remote area deep in the jungle for many reasons. After Brother E received a vision, we went together to this particular tribe. In less than four months, the church grew to 150 people. The only Bible that the people had was a pocket New Testament. Usually a few main workers have the Old and New Testaments. Only one family per village typically has a Bible. That's one per village. Since they have no kerosene for lighting, they burn pine wood. They place the pine wood sticks in a big metal dish and hang it from the ceiling. Usually they hang two in a room. Even with this light, it's difficult to read. The ceilings in the houses of the tribal brothers are usually low. We have to stoop as we go through the door and we do not have enough light because these fire bowls cannot be placed high. The long houses have rough and bumpy floors. Many times snakes and other creatures like centipedes come into the houses, but we are not bitten. (laughs) Amen. Take up serpents and scorpions. Amen. The walls and roof are made of thatch, and the roof is held up with poles. The houses have a kitchen at one end, and the water is outside. Everyone packs into the house about nine meters wide by nine meters long. Usually 70 or 80 people are crowded together. Now, nine meters is just like almost 30 feet. That's not much at all. So in a 30 by 30 house, there's like 80 or 70 or 80 people are crowded together. <clears throat> the owner of this house added on to it with more grass and bamboo so more people can meet together. It's cold in there. Everyone wraps in a blanket and sits side by side. The Christians gather at night to sing and they memorize songs by heart. The Lord gives them strength to serve him well. <clears throat> the people sit far away from the light. So the dropping ashes will not burn them. Usually the heavy smoke spreads all over the room, blackening the walls and roof. Many times after a meeting, the people who come from far away stay overnight. In the morning, they leave for their homes farther in the jungle. Only their eyes are visible because their faces are black with ash and smoke. Those who live nearby return to their homes at night and sometimes take others with them to rest. 
On one occasion, some of the villagers gave a false report about me to the government. They told them that I was involved in anti-government secular work, destroying ancestor worship and idols that people have followed for years. In June 1994, the police ordered me to their office. The word says that whoever finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. I praise the Lord because of scripture, it is written that the godly man will have to be persecuted. I was called to the police station three more times because weak Christians of the persecution told them about me. One brother said, Brother uh, KB gave it to me. Four house churches in different villages reported that I was the one who gave them Bibles. As I entered the police station, the police said, today we will give you time to think it over. Are you willing to speak the truth today? We have all these papers as proof against you. He handed me a piece of paper that a brother had placed inside his Bible. The paper had my name on it. They told me to open my eyes wide to see if it was my name. When I looked at it, I saw the piece of paper was mine, but the wrong tribe was written. I replied, honestly, that is not my tribe. So the Lord opened a way for my release. Afterwards, the police came to persecute two village churches that I had established in the area. These believers were the first spiritual harvest that the Lord gave me. I was very happy and often visited to encourage the brothers. Then the persecution came abundantly, shaking the church, knowing God's voice. My work has been successful because of the wholehearted support from my wife, Kiap. She prays for me as I minister, and she takes care of the children. We have two kids still in school. Our youngest daughter is nearly five years old and very cute. Our son is nine. Many times my wife joins me on a trip, sometimes for days, and we leave the children with my wife's sister who takes good care of them. He handles children's evangelism. We are very happy serving the Lord. With this ministry, there is much persecution and many joys. Many times our income is not as good as the others who focus their time working on plantations, but the Lord gives us enough for daily life. Whenever I go to evangelize, my wife and I usually pray together and see how the Lord leads us together. One Sunday morning, I planned to go to Fu Hiep Church to share the word. I woke up early and told my wife we must get up early and go by bicycle to the the Fu Hep Church and have communion there. My wife, as the Lord moved in her heart, said, This morning I don't feel we should go there to church. I agreed and we decided to go the following week. <clears throat> Later that day, a brother from that church ran to our home and said, Oh, Brother KB, what should we do now? This morning a special team of police poured into our home where we were meeting. The brothers hadn't yet handed out the Bibles. They were still hanging in the bags on the wall. The police just rushed in and took everything. They were very cruel. These tribal people have very simple houses. They keep their Bibles in a bag that hangs on the wall. The police looked in the bag and took six Bibles, but there were other Bibles that the brothers quickly hid. Earlier in the day, the police caught three new converts and Don Duong, who had been Christians for only three months, including Brother Nian. The police had then tried to find me when they caught these Christians and ordered them to report to the police station on Tuesday. They went to the church at Fu Hip that Sunday and said, where is Mr. KB? I was grateful that my wife urged me not to go there that day. 
I was called to the police station the next morning. Before I went, I met Brother Nian, who told me it was good that you didn't come on Sunday morning. They looked for you, and they called me to go to the police tomorrow. We talked together, deciding what to say. I encouraged him, don't be afraid. The Lord will be with you and help you. Be careful, because they will say that Mr. KB told them about you already, but this will be a lie to trick you. Later, the police sent an order for all the male Christians in the Thu Hip Church to come to the police office where they were arrested. For the first week, they were isolated in a dark cell without food or drink. The following week, Brother K. Nian was placed in in cell number three, which is a special room where all the prisoners use where all the prisoners use the toilet. The Christians could not eat much rice because of the smell. Brother Kanyan had to stay in that cell for a week. After his release from prison, he was seriously ill for three or four months. I was never in that cell, but the police threatened me. If you do not give an accurate report, then tonight we will let you see what it's like in room number three. The police told these Christians that they didn't report clearly because they covered for me. These faithful believers didn't want to say that I was the one who comes to help their church, so they remained silent. The month of June is harvest time, so it's very difficult. There was no more food in the homes from the previous harvest, and the villagers had just started to harvest a new crop. The Christian families were so lacking food, but they still brought food into the prison for the men. I encouraged the church to leave gifts of food for those in prison. The police did not allow the church members to communicate with the brothers in prison because they were afraid that they would exchange counsel and opinions. So the wives would just leave a woven basket of rice for the husbands. Every two days, they would also try to bring vegetables. However, the police took the vegetables and would slide under the door only rice and salt. After this persecution, the Christians' faith was a bit shaken, so they sent word that I could no longer come to their village or they would be persecuted more. So I sent word to them that the Lord says in Matthew eleven six, Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And many more words to encourage them. A while later, they invited me to come back again. I came and encouraged the church, so now the church is stronger as before. After the police arrested the three brothers from Don Dyung and didn't get any information from them, they fined them 750,000 dong, about two or three months' wages, and released them. The Christians didn't have the money, so they ran to me and asked, where can we borrow some money? Perhaps after we are released from prison, From the prison interviews, we can work in the forest to cut down logs or do something to pay someone back. Usually in a small village, the tribal people don't have money and have to borrow from the Vietnamese. If the Christians cannot pay the fine, then the police will sentence them two months more in prison. Many times they borrow from the non-believers and have to pay a high interest rate. If they borrow 100,000 dong, for example, then in six months they must repay 170,000. Six months is a short time to pay off the loan. Christians fam- Christian families pay what they can. It depends on the mood of each non-believer. If they have much, they give much. Some Christians pay them back by raising cocoons for silk. Some people saw logs. 
Other gives a day's, others give a day's wages in the plantation to help raise money for the brothers. I told these Christians that my main work was to help serve the Lord so I didn't have much money. We prayed together, and then the Lord provided us with the exact amount of the money from Christian friends in the city, 750000 dong. The Christians were released. I prayed the Lord, I praised the Lord that no one had to go to prison because they were unable to pay the fine. These brothers learned in prison that when they rely on man, man cannot help them, so they rely on God. The Lord can open different ways to help them. The Lord gives them strength to serve him well. Praise God. All right. Now that's not amen. I'll read this last little part. (laughs) I was going to say that's not the end of it. I want to read about the baptism of mud. Okay. Last April during the night, a brother led us on a motorbike to a village to visit Long Kwok Church. My wife and I followed him on a second motorbike. She rode on the back. We brought along Bibles and tracts. We had to ride up and down hills on roads with big holes and sneak into the village. I have a light on my motorbike, but many times I ride at night with any, without my light for safety. I use a flashlight in case I don't remember the road well. I ask my wife to turn on the flashlight for just one minute and then turn it off and keep going. We could easily see only stars in the motorbike light or flashlight sneaking through the village, not knowing where to go. But since this brother knew the way he led us, in the rainy season, it's very easy to fall. Sometimes the roads are so wet and muddy that we cannot push our motorbikes through them. Many times we fall in the water. One night we were on a muddy road moving quite fast through the puddles of water. We had a light, but the road was too slippery. We crossed some sticky mud and fell over on the side. Another sister in Christ also fell. We told her to sit while we slowly pushed the motorbike back up to her. We were very dirty with red mud all over us. Our trip takes a long time. We have to stop and use a stick to push away all the mud that gets stuck on the fenders and wheels. When we push the motorbike and continue on, but mud gets stuck all over the wheels again. We usually arrive at the village hours later. We have to visit them at night because during the day they work 20 kilometers away. The people burn a fire inside the house on a dirt floor and put some hot water uh, on for tea. Everyone sits and waits for us. We visit and sometimes pray for the sick, share scripture, and stay there a few hours. Then we go home before the police notice. We turn off the motorbike light and sneak out quickly. One night we were going across the region from Quan Ki, crossing the district of Langdam province. There is a river in this area. We were walking on a trail in the jungle forest where there were tigers and monkeys. When we walk in the jungle, we walk single file with one person in front of the other. Usually the tribal people have cut the grass to show the way. That night, one brother walked in front of me and another brother walked in back carrying a machete, a long knife. We heard sounds like something stepping on sticks and bamboo trees. So I said, is that a tiger? And the brother in front responded, no, not so. But I turned around and spotted a tiger on the right. I saw its yellow and black stripes. We said, oh, God will protect us. Just walk. So we just walked. My favorite verse, John fifteen sixteen, is how the Lord called me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I ask that the brothers and sisters in other countries remember to pray especially for my tribe, the 
key Ho tribe and for Vietnam in general so that the gospel will be freely preached and his kingdom will expand. We also remember to pray for you, brothers and sisters. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. So we'll put down the K apostrophe H-O tribe in Vietnam. Okay, so what I'll do is we'll start with the uh, protection against persecution prayer, and I'll pray uh, some other scriptures that the Lord gave me to pray. Shannon, have them for me. Praise God. Thanks, little Howard. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Praise God. Okay. So, you know, in case you want to mark them or make note of them, the extra scriptures we're praying are Psalm 53. I think it's starting at the beginning. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we'll pray all of it. Psalm 54, 6 through 7. <clears throat> well, actually, 54, 1 through 7. Psalm 51, 1 through 11. 6 through 19. And 22 to 23. Psalm 56, 1 through 7, and 9 through 13. Psalm 57, 1 through 11. And Ezekiel 37, 9, and 10. So I'm going to ask you to pray in the spirit and I'll pray in the English and we'll, if you want to move around, if, you, if you're fine sitting, then sit. And if you feel like you want to stretch or you want to expand yourself, you can. Thank you, Father. We bless you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise your holy name. Kurandaria shia handaya rabosia handaya Kurandaria Kurandaria handaya Thank you Lord for forgiving our sins cleansing us from all unrighteousness Thank you Jesus that your blood is sufficient to take care of anything that would stand between us and you. And Father, we cleanse our hearts now. And we've been reading these testimonies and hearing about the viciousness and wickedness of these governments and uh, other governments. And Father, we ask you right now to remove any kind of animosity from us, Lord. Cleanse our hearts so that we can understand and pray and love and love these people that are persecuting us and other Christians worldwide. Father, we want to reach your throne on behalf of all of these needs here. We don't want to miss anything, Father. We don't want to take anything for granted. We don't want to assume that we have a right heart, condition, and attitude toward the people who persecute us and innocent other people. Especially these stories from Vietnam, Lord. It's just so horrendous, the things that we hear being done. But we know that your love is greater and that your love (coughs) covers a multitude of sins. 
It covers all sin and all faults. And so we thank you, Lord. And we forgive them. And we ask you, Lord, to move on the behalf of the persecuted believers. We ask you to increase the church worldwide. We ask you to increase it even in the midst of persecution, Lord. Father, we thank you for being with these people. Showing them your way. We thank you, Lord, for the Bibles that they already have. That they can draw from your word. And that they know as they hear your word and as they speak your word, as they are doers of your word, not just hearers, but they decide to believe your word and become doers of your word. Father, we see that you move on their behalf without fail. We have testimony that you have moved on their behalf many times without fail. And we thank you, Lord, for moving on the behalf of all persecuted believers worldwide. We ask you also for the persecuted believers who are under the control of ISIS and of these Muslim terrorists, Father. We curse these works of darkness in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, to cause your people to rise up victorious against every wickedness, against every foe, against every persecution, against every trial, Lord. We say that we are a prevailing church and the gates of hell will not prevail over us. So we thank you, Lord, for causing your church to prevail, even against severe threat. We don't consider anything above your ability to handle for us. So we thank you, Lord, for protecting us against persecution. In Jesus' name. Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Everyone is turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are overwhelmed with dread, where there is nothing to help, nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come up out of Zion. When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles. And my eyes looked in triumph on my foes. Psalm 55. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me. And I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying. Because of the threats of the wicked. For they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The tears of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I will hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. For I see violence and strife in the city. 
Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave the streets. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening and morning and noon I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them, humble them, because they have no fear of God. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never leave the righteous to be shaken, but you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days, but as for me, I trust you. Psalm 56, 1 through 7, 9 through 13. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, Lord, bring the nations down. Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. But this I will know that God, by this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust and not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you.